KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Bhaskar Sunkara, the founder of Jacobin, has become president of The Nation magazine. He'll talk about what independent media can and should do during wartime. Also, does anyone have a right to sex? Katha Pala will comment on the arguments made by incels, the involuntary celibates, and on the new book called The Right to Sex by philosopher Amia Srinivasan. First up, of course, we need to talk about the U.S. and Ukraine. And of course, we need to turn to Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, Wednesday, when we are speaking, was the Zelensky speech to Congress. There's never been anything quite like it before. Well, there was Winston Churchill's speech to Congress uh, when shortly after Pearl Harbor and the fact that uh, the UK and the US were then both uh, in World War II against both the Nazis and the Japanese. Uh, in late December, Churchill and the top British military officials came to Washington to try to plan the war out now that they had a partner. And Churchill took the occasion to address a joint session of Congress. Uh, Churchill had previously been imploring Roosevelt to do more to help Britain before Pearl Harbor. Uh, and Roosevelt had done a number of things, Lend-Lease, and he uh, basically gave the British 50 destroyers, uh, uh, but uh, he never really felt there was sufficient uh, uh, support, really, political support in the United States for declaring war. Uh, and the, the, therefore, uh, it took Pearl Harbor and then the almost immediate German declaration of war on the U.S. to uh, end that uh, sort of half-pregnant uh, period. Zelensky uh, is still in that half-pregnant period. He uh, has requested uh, the establishment of a no-fly zone. Biden and the people around him, I think, rightly think that that would just raise the stakes too high to uh, the possibility of a direct conflict between two nuclear powers. So they're doing a lot, but they're not doing that. I did notice that in Zelensky's speech, his first request was for a no-fly zone, but then he added something very significant, quoting him, if this is too much, he said, the alternative is what he called other systems that could accomplish the same thing, apparently anti-aircraft system. That's, that's a big difference from the point of view of the United States. It is, and I think it's we are have given them and are giving them more uh, anti-aircraft uh, technology and some anti-aircraft uh, missiles. So Biden has uh, has pointed to all the things the United States has provided the Ukraine with six hundred Stinger anti-aircraft systems, two thousand six hundred Javelin anti-tank weapons, forty million rounds of small arms ammunition, and. Wednesday, he announced an additional $800 million in security assistance, bringing the total aid Biden has announced in the past week to a billion. Congress, meanwhile, passed an aid package of nearly $13 billion. This is mostly weapons. Is there anything else the United States can do beyond sending weapons? Well, sure. Ukraine is a country uh, undergoing a, you know, a horrific invasion. 
and they need medicine, they need food. Uh, and there are certainly, uh, I think, some very smart ideas about how to get them there. Uh, and I, I wrote about this uh, in uh, my magazine's webpage on Tuesday, uh, proposed by, of all people, Doug Fife, who was one of the idiots who uh, was in the Pentagon under Rumsfeld and was uh, one of the neocons who was gung-ho about uh, the uh, our invading Iraq uh, in, in the best uh, neocon tradition. That, that was certainly the most uh, egregious, unforced error error of policy of this century, at least until Putin is making a bid to top that. Yes. Uh, but, you know, give credit where credit is due, uh, Doug Fife and some colleagues at the Hudson Institute, which is a right-wing institute that's not nearly as crazy as some other right-wing uh, institutes here in D.C., uh, propose that, uh, yeah, we provide food and medicine, but have it brought uh, to uh, Ukraine by some uh, neutral powers like India, like Egypt, uh, you know, and they can call up Russia and say, hey, we're flying a plane in, don't, don't bother us. Um, you know, and I think that's a, you know, that's a necessary idea and that's a, that's a great idea. Um, you know, and if Putin wants to shoot down one of those planes, well, so much for that idea. But, uh, it, you know, I mean, at that point, uh, he could well lose the neutrality of, of nations that have yet to... Uh, uh, condemn him if he cares about that. So, so but it's it's an excellent idea. And I have a question about the the big picture here of the historical patterns. I've been hearing for years that closer economic ties between Russia and the West, capitalism everywhere, would deter wars and make the whole world a safer and happier place. I guess this was wrong. I think so. Uh, I, I, I think so. That was uh, uh, certainly what Tom Friedman, the New York Times foreign, foreign affairs columnist, wrote in the New York Times about every three weeks for <laughs> maybe 15 years. Uh, wherever there was a McDonald's, he said, you wouldn't see two nations with McDonald's stands going to war against each other. Well, uh, so much for that. Uh, so much for uh, there's a tradition of this, assuming that economic inter interconnections uh, will uh, somehow stop wars. Uh, this was widely believed in Europe uh, in the years leading up to World War I. Uh, you know, Europe hadn't had a big war. It had a lot of small wars, but it didn't have a really big war since uh, uh, in Waterloo uh, in 1815, and it was getting close to 100 years. Uh, a, a British uh, writer, uh, actually a very bright guy, uh, Norman Angell, wrote a book in 1910 saying that the interconnections that existed in Europe were profound and, uh, you know, it was impossible to believe that war would happen. And, you know, actually, this is often a belief among intellectual, artistic and economic elites, because they're the ones who experience this uh, degree of cross-border life, actually. I mean, one of the, uh, I was writing about this, one of the things that was always just amaze me in terms of that there is a distinct European cross-border culture before World War I. Uh, George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, which is about uh, the, the class differences in spoken English, uh, you know, which would not, you wouldn't think would be something that would lend itself to translation. Its world premiere was held in Vienna in German, <laughs> Before it actually premiered in in Britain, uh, uh, several months later. Um, so, boy, yes, that is an interconnected European culture. And uh, yeah, eighteen months after that, 
Europeans were killing each other in record numbers. Uh, so I, I think this is, you know, I mean, uh, that movie about World War One, the great Jean Renoir movie, Grand Illusion, Grand, the Great Illusion. Uh, it's an illusion mainly of elites, I think. And that this was, again, the case um, with what, the, what Tom Friedman was writing. You know, there were two promises made to us by the elites about the uh, effect of, of global capitalism. One, it would stop war. Two, it would democratize China. The, the big argument when we let China into the WTO in 2000 uh, was that um, you know, uh, China would play by uh, international trade rules. It was becoming capitalist. Hence, it would become democratic. Well, so much for that one, too, you know? Well, the, the biggest economic, capitalist economic connection between Europe and Russia, of course, is natural gas pipelines. Russia needs to sell natural gas. It has a huge surplus. Europe needs to buy natural gas. This is a match made in capitalist heaven, and now now it's been now it's been shattered. It's not going to happen. Russian oil and gas is being banned pretty much from the whole world market, um, and that is going to make it harder for the United States to avoid a recession. At least that's what David Dan says in the prospect, uh, and just into a recession just in time for the midterms. I wonder if it has to be that way. I don't know. I don't know that it has to be that way, but things are looking, uh, you know, pretty bleak right now. Uh, and and oil is not the only staple whose price has soared up. Now it's gone down somewhat, though. Uh, also, Ukraine uh, is in many ways right after us, the world leading producer of wheat, uh, which is an absolute staple uh, when it comes to uh, food and eating, and I think. We may end up seeing food riots in a bunch of countries as a result of this. I don't know that it's going to boost uh, the price of bread here beyond what it's been, but uh, there are a lot of complexities out there. And to, uh, uh, on today, on Wednesday, as we speak, for the first time in four years, the Federal Reserve also uh, raised the interest rate, not fortunately by as much as Larry Summers wanted it to raise the interest rate uh, by a quarter point, which is you know a moderate uh, a moderate rate. Of course, you know, there's a bit of a disconnect since the inflation we're going through is in many ways a supply chain inflation. It is certainly not, uh, you know, wages being out of control inflation. So, But didn't the Fed say they have plans for six more increases that they were announcing right now? Uh, well, the first one was announced today. These six would be over the course of uh, either the next year or Two yes. years, I think, yeah. more, more yes. accurately. And inflation is at a point where, you know, you kind of expect this. Uh, the fact is, though, that Jerome Powell, against going against type, has proved to be a dove on inflation. And, you know, people say he should follow the lessons of Paul Volcker, who uh, more or less killed the in, uh, inflation of the late 70s and early 80s, which was significant. He also killed, uh, you know, the industrial Midwest. Uh, that led to a wave, the biggest wave of factory closures as uh, goods were priced out and, um, uh, you know, the damage to the economy and really the body politics, since uh, that's in many ways what cast uh, working class workers adrift from their historic mooring in the Democratic Party. Um, you know, there are 
cures that are more deadly uh, than the disease. And that's what you have to watch out for in terms of dealing with inflation. One last thing on Ukraine, and this could be big. On Wednesday afternoon, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said Russia and Ukraine were, quote, close to agreeing, close quote, on a peace deal, the obvious one under which Ukraine would abandon its NATO aspirations in return for a Russian withdrawal and some sort of Western security guarantees. Lavrov told the news media on Wednesday afternoon, quote, there is some hope of reaching a compromise. Neutral status is now being seriously discussed along with security guarantees. That is what is now being discussed at the talks. There are absolutely specific wordings. And in my view, the sides are close to agreeing on them, close quote. What do you think about this? Well, if so, I mean, A, that was sort of the obvious place to, you know, end up to begin with, uh, you know, and at the end of World War II, Austria and Finland and, uh, you know, some border countries were officially became neutral and things in Austria and Finland were been pretty damn good, uh, even though they don't belong to NATO. Uh, so let's hope this is true. Now, you know, we haven't heard this from Putin. We've heard this from Lavrov, uh, who has to answer to Putin, presumably, uh, he's doing this with his boss's approval, and presumably Zelensky thinks he has uh, now enough political space so he can sell that deal to the Ukrainian people. Anyway, let's hope. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America. You've said there are two things Biden can do immediately to shore up his support among young people, things which will also sharpen the class contradictions in America. Yeah, I don't think I use class contradictions. My, my, Mar my Marxist brain cells were on strike that day. But, uh, uh, one, uh, which he has the power to do, would be to uh, retire student debt, or at least forgive, pick a figure, the first 10,000, the first 20,000. And look, it, it, polling now shows that his support among voters under the age of 30 has fallen by 25% since what it was last year. Uh, and, you know, as the Democrats go into the midterms, they're really fearful of very low youth turnout, which will make it even a more Republican year. So I think that's the most uh, significant thing he could do. I also, uh, and here my uh, Joe Hill uh, brain, uh, brain cells were working overtime, suggested since, you know, he basically intervened in the uh, attempt of the uh, warehouse workers in the Amazon warehouse in uh, Bessemer, Alabama. He said, you know, you deserve the right, uh, you know, to have a uh, heavy union if you choose. So I, I think he should make a similar talk to um, go to, say, Buffalo and make a similar talk to the baristas at Starbucks. Um, this is a generation uh, that is, uh, you know, the people who work at Starbucks uh, everything we know about this generation, it's the most pro-union generation in American history. The uh, approval rating in the Gallup polls of young people for unions the last time, uh, about nine months ago, when uh, they last polled, was 77%. Um, you know, why not? Why not uh, get out there and uh, say you deserve a union? And I think that would also uh, cause both progressives and young people who are not identical constituencies 
to say, yeah, hey, this guy is uh, is fighting a good fight and uh, we, we should, you know, be there for him. On the student debt front, I noticed that April 4th is the National Day of Action where thousands of indebted students are going to uh, march on the White House and ask Biden to pick up the pen and by executive order cancel all student debt. Um, that kind of pressure uh, could make a difference. It could. And, you know, on May 2nd, the moratorium uh, that was established when the pandemic came in, uh, the moratorium on student debt payments is set to expire. So Biden either has to let that happen and, you know, <laughs> he'll do even worse among younger voters or he has to do something. I mean, he could extend the moratorium for the rest of the year. That's the minimal position. Uh, but you know, only, there's only so much of the road you can kick the can down on. So uh, let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's hope he uh, does something more than that. Elsewhere on the class struggle front, in addition to baristas organizing in lots of different places, we have action at Amazon, big action, something called Amazonians United have staged the first ever multi-state coordinated work stoppage at the Amazon Logistics Empire. This was at three facilities in New York and Maryland. Amazon workers walked off the job at six o'clock uh, Eastern time this week. And this effort was coordinated by a worker-led collective called Amazonians United. This effort predates last year's failed union drive at Bessemer. Um, Amazonians United has extracted concessions from the company in the form of millions of dollars in benefits for warehouse workers, reclaiming paid time off for part-time workers and illegally denied sick pay. Um, and I believe Amazonians United is not part of a union. Is that right? Uh, that's right. That was uh, the case in the uh, New York, the Staten Island warehouse workers are doing this on their own, which suggests obvious rank and file dissatisfaction with their work and turning towards unions. Now, there is a new regime, the first in 15 years, it's about to take over at the Teamsters who have pledged a, a nationwide campaign. Uh, Teamsters historically have represented warehouse workers. In order to go to scale, you need something like that, but you need both. You need both elements. You need the rank and file willingness to, uh, you know, uh, walk out and uh, say, this is what we're doing. And you need the resources of a well-resourced union, which the Teamsters certainly are. The third factor, which I don't think we have time to get into here, is that the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Abruzzo, is the single most pro-labor and knows what knows how to do something about it, uh, government official since arguably Senator Robert Wagner authored the National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s. This is going to make unionization a little bit of a less death-defying action on the heart of on behalf of workers who have reasonably feared they could lose their jobs. That's against law. Penalties have been essentially non-existent. Under Abruzzo's new memos, penalties are very existent. So let's see where that, where that goes. My understanding of Amazonians United, which is completely dependent on the prospect, prospect.org, is that um, they view 
the NLRB process, rightly, is very protracted, time-consuming. And even if you win your election, then you can have months and sometimes years of negotiations. And even if you don't have 50% to win an election right now, a militant minority can still strike, walk out, cause enough disruption to force immediate changes uh, at particular places. And that's what they seem to have proved in the, in the last several months. Well, militant minorities have been crucial in uh, American labor uh, successes. You know, I mean, it was maybe 50 to 100 people who occupied the General Motors plants in Flint in the winter of 1936-37. And it was such an effective action, it shut down General Motors. And then, you know, the UAW got its first contract uh, for more than 100 people. It was for all plants of of General Motors. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, one of the the big changes that the above-mentioned general counsel at the NLRB uh, Jennifer Abruzzo has put out in her memo to uh, NLRB lawyers across the country is if a, if a company uh, doesn't recognize a union, even after it has just signed a majority of cards, there is an old uh, precedent she is now bringing back to life after 70 plus years, which says the NLRB can simply declare it a union and order the company to go into bargaining and then supervise the bargaining. Uh, you know, that's the level of, frankly, radicalism where we're now suddenly seeing after, again, 70 years at, uh, at the NLRBs. One last thing. I know our listeners have been wondering, what about Donald Trump? You haven't even mentioned Donald Trump. Well, this week, Trump is back in the news. You know, Trump has taken kind of a beating on his, uh, what should we call it, admiration for uh, uh, Putin. This week, Trump told the Washington Examiner, which asked him what he thinks about Putin, quote, Donald Trump said, quote, I think he's changed. It's a very sad thing for the world. He's very much changed, close quote. Wonder if you have any comment. Um, actually, I, I think we should let Trump just speak for himself. That that remains possibly the Democrats' ace in the hole uh, in uh if he runs again and is a Republican nominee in 2024. Uh, Trump loved Putin uh, when it was uh, he could get away with it. And now that he can't get away with it, he obviously has to sing uh, a, a different song. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks as always for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Independent media are the lifeblood of democracy, especially during a time of war like the present. For that, we turn to Bhaskar Sunkara, the founder of Jacobin Magazine, who has just joined The Nation magazine as president, leading the magazine's publishing and business strategy. He's the author of a terrific book, The Socialist Manifesto, He was a columnist for the Guardian U.S. edition. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. We reached him today in Brooklyn. Bhaskar Sunkara, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
at the nation you are working with katrina vanden our publisher and editorial director and dd guttenplan our editor what will you be doing as president well most of my function revolves around uh business strategy trying to boost circulation working on our ancillary programs like uh, events and uh, our shop and other things and kind of just making sure we have enough funds to keep pursuing our journalism and and all that other important, important activity. You founded Jacobin between your sophomore and junior years in college. I think that was 2010 when you were 21 years old. Jacobin now has grown to a paid circulation of nearly 70,000 with 2.6 million unique visitors per month in 2021. Jacobin publishes in five languages and also publishes the magazine Tribune based in the UK. I think everybody is wondering why you would leave the magazine you founded for the nation. Well, I'm not fully leaving in that I'm still going to have a role on the board of directors and, and still be around as my advice is needed and solicited. <laughs> I think that there's an exciting opportunity to help out the nation and to help put the nation on a path even further success, in part because it's an institution that's been around since 1865. It's an institution that is very important to the American left. I think it's an institution that has the potential to help galvanize and be at the center of a new progressive movement. And I do think that we're in a very, very difficult period going forward. I mean, we're seeing the collapse of a somewhat ambitious domestic agenda of of the Biden administration basically collapsing with with not as much as, as we would like to show for it. We're seeing uh, very ominous signs as far as the, the polling for Republicans in midterms. We're seeing a lot of politics as we, we know it, and a lot of the potential that came out of the Bernie Sanders moment in 2016 getting devolved into um, you know, a political terrain that's it's not very fruitful or productive for the for the left, where it, it seems to be exactly what the right wants us to be, which is engaging in a you know a culture war, engaging in debates through the media instead of being able to reach ordinary people with our common sense message that, you know, what's good for millionaires and billionaires is not actually good for the vast majority of of Americans. So I think that the nation is well positioned to uh, be a part of galvanizing and coherent, cohering some sort of um, alternative agenda and, and, and resistance. You know, I think Jackman is obviously part of that too, but the nation owing to where it's politically positioned, owing to its longevity, owing to its, its success as an institution, I think will be especially important in the years to come. So the big issue for the nation and our sister publications is the role of independent media at a time when our democracy is facing such great threats. And of course, when Russia, at the time when Russia has attacked Ukraine, lots of mainstream media outlets write about the threats to democracy and the war in Ukraine. Uh, TheNation.com posts new pieces daily, sometimes hourly. Right now we have a reporter in Poland at the Ukraine border, Nicholas Niarkos. But a magazine like The Nation can't match the resources of the New York Times or CNN or The Guardian when it comes to covering events like the war uh, in Ukraine. So what is the role of progressive media like the nation in this situation? 
a lot of what we will have to do when it comes to big international events or when it comes to, to things that do require um, multi-million dollar bureaus in different countries and and lots of journalists on the ground to get a full picture of things uh, is to provide secondary coverage. I mean, I think that that obviously you do journalism as you can internationally. You do your investigations. You try to pursue angles that, that might go uncovered by by mainstream uh, journalism, bourgeois journalism. Maybe can I still use that language? Please, please. Pivot now to, to mainstream journalism. <laughs> but a lot of what I think is distinct about what left-wing publications can do is to provide a broader framework, to provide context, to talk about longer term, the long array of history, to talk about class, to talk about all these dynamics that, that aren't necessarily going to be exposed by other, other outlets. So I think there's, there's a lot there that we could add without necessarily just duplicating or without having the pretenses of being able to cover everything in real time, because realistically, that's that's not going to happen. I used to remember, you know, my, my background, my roots, um, still my politics are, you know, from the from the far left. So I spent a lot of time over the years reading sectarian newspapers, and sometimes you would pick up a copy of um, an old socialist newspaper. I won't name, you know, which ones, and. It would be almost like reading a version of the New York Times where they would have the pretenses that working class people are picking this up as an alternative to reading something like the Times as opposed to at best, you know, as a as a supplement, as a way to kind of decode the news a bit differently, as a way to get certain views and, and perspectives. Uh, so I think in the international arena, that's really the role for our coverage. And I think uh, as far as new and original investigative content, that's really important. But any relatively small publication in terms of budget and, and general resources, you know, it has to pick its spots, has to pick about, you know, a particular story, maybe one with a, a labor orientation or one about the plight or conditions of, of domestic workers in this country or about migrants or about people butting into the the asylum system in the US or a host of other things that might go might be less explored in um big uh newspapers i mean i think that's where to the extent we have resources for for investigative journalism that's where our our resources should be deployed so it's just a matter of being being strategic i guess Sticking with the war in Ukraine for a minute, our role is to provide the larger context, the history, the long durée. What, what is your perspective on the war? Of course, the nation has been writing about NATO encirclement of Russia since it started, you know, what, 25 years ago. Now, now there's a different moment. What, what is to be done now, in your view? Well, I don't think we should be afraid or shy away from, in any way, providing context. And I think that Events and illegal, despicable actions like Putin's invasion of of Ukraine uh, don't happen in a vacuum. And I think that that there was a certain security arrangement that uh, Russian elites, ordinary Russians too, thought that they were signing up for after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We've seen the expansion already of NATO into the Baltic states. We've seen the expansion of of um of NATO into Poland and other places that Russia would 
it didn't have an understanding that that, that would um, that would happen. Uh, obviously, it's complex because you know these are sovereign states that are making their own decisions about their own alliances, and we don't necessarily want to subscribe to a certain version of great power politics that just says, um, you know, these countries don't have a right to pursue their own course as nations. But we have to think about what, at least on paper, the reason for NATO's existence is. And if the reason is, as a defensive military alliance, at least a nominal reason why NATO exists, then why would it pursue an expansion that makes war more likely rather than less likely? Why would it even, at various moments, uh, pursue the expansion of NATO into Ukraine, into Georgia, and into other states that you know, Russia saw as, as being um, you know, security um, threats? So... Again, I think we can unambiguously say that Putin's actions in Ukraine are morally reprehensible, that the, what Russia's, the Russian military is doing in Ukraine is a crime. Uh, we could believe, uh, as I do, in Ukraine's right to resist uh, the Russian military and then hope for a diplomatic uh, solution that could end the blood so- uh, shed and the, the, the suffering in Ukraine, while also providing a broader context that points a critical eye at, at NATO and the actions of the United States as well, without in any way equivocating between the two, because NATO might have created the, some of the backdrop, and the United States might have created some of the backdrop, but ultimately the responsibility uh, for the conflict most fundamentally has to be on the aggressor country, which in this case is Russia. Your last piece for Jacobin a month ago was titled The Left in Purgatory. You wrote there that socialists in America are now, quote, at the end of a period of rapid politicization and settling into one of either gradual decline or slow advance. You said socialists are now an entrenched part of mainstream of American politics and no immediate setback will relegate us to our pre-2011 state. Yet there is something dangerous about being large enough to be a political presence in parts of the country and the subculture for thousands of activists, but far too disorganized and powerless to carry out our political program. You call that, quote, the path to political self-satisfaction, a marginality that is just large enough to sustain itself, but that will never be strong enough to move beyond permanent resistance, close quote. Where does the nation fit into this picture of the left in purgatory? Well, I got to say, hearing my writing read out loud, I mean, it just like, uh, I, I should have edited that some more. I, I, I could have at least cut off at least two, three sentences off of that. Um, I thought it was great. But, uh, well, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, look, what I, what I would say is that in general, uh, the dilemma that I was trying to get at is just as simple as the left can't carry out its program. Before, the big question was, where is the American left? Why can't the American left do, do anything? Whereas in that left and purgatory editorial, what I was trying to ask is, what does it mean to have a left that people can see and is visible, but that is ultimately unable to, to carry out the types of, of changes that can improve people's lives? And I think that's gotten us into a um, chicken and egg kind of uh, problem in that it's very hard to build a mass base if you don't have uh, real victories that you could point to and you could take credit for. 
because uh, in other words, we need to show people that politics can improve their lives and that collective action is a viable route to making uh, their societies better for themselves and their, their families. At the same time, I don't want to be too dismissive of the fact that we do have groups like the Democratic Socialists of America. We do have lots of other um, important groups that are are fighting for change, and that these these are, are are welcome. So, kind of having a awareness of of how long we have to go, how far we have to go, and uh, also you know some sort of optimism is 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 what I'm gunning for. Now, where the nation fits it, I think is um, as a publication that has a potentially massive reach. You know, it's, it's a publication that already now has a circulation around 100,000, already now reaches millions of people online, and I think is really well positioned to be seen and interpreted by ordinary people as their voice. And I think that that's something a little bit different than uh, what other left publications uh, can do. I think Jacobin, for instance, uh, can and is to some degree already a voice of an ideology and a voice of a program. But I think we need more venues, not just the nation, but the nation among them, that can become voices of an entire class. So I think the two can work in, in tandem, but one's a much bigger and more ambitious thing. You're an immensely talented writer. I have to say, I love your book, The Socialist Manifesto. It is a joy to read. It's fun to read, which you can't say about very many manifestos. You're, you're also, of course, a talented socialist entrepreneur and institution builder. I wonder if you're going to be doing any writing for the nation in your new job as president. Well, it's not going to be a core function of my, my job. Obviously, I have a great relationship with, with the nation's editor. I have a great relationship with Don, um, and he's asked me to write uh, a bunch in the, in the past. But I would say that if I'm doing my job right, then I'll be uh, way too busy kind of doing <laughs> all the things in the background to increase the, the reach and, and impact of many other nation you know, writers. And what I kind of found it wasn't my intent when I started Jackman or in all these years in, in publishing, but what I found was that I could discover and I could support writers and thinkers that uh, were better than, than me at writing and thinking. Um, and, but I, I did have a unique skill set that is probably a, a more useful you know, use of my time on the, on the left, which is you know, figuring out how to do things like increase circulation and uh, make sure that the venue stays fresh and, and relevant, not by, you know, necessarily shaping the, the content itself, but kind of the box in which the content is, uh, is put. But I have full, you know, confidence in the existing crew of nation writers and, and editors. So my focus is, for now, uh, definitely going to be elsewhere. And is there any chance we'll see your byline in The Guardian or, or other outlets? Yeah, I mean, I, so for now, I'm actually working on two, or I'm finishing up two books. Uh, one is A History of the Grenadian Revolution, uh, wow. which actually just yesterday had its anniversary. You know, so it, 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 it initially took place in um, March 1979. Uh, I've been interviewing and speaking to a lot of the main participants of the, the revolution. My family's from the Anglophone Caribbean from Trinidad and Tobago, so it's always been a particular point of, of interest, and you know, I spent a long time 
during the pandemic and afterwards, um, interviewing people, going through archives, and kind of preparing, hopefully, a, a short, accessible book that speaks to not just the fantastic seizure of power uh, in early stages of the, the, the revolution, and not just the very tragic demise of the revolution through infighting and then U.S. invasion, but also to the really exciting uh, programs that were experimented with, social programs, education programs, literacy programs, and also programs that I think are models of, of what even a poor and impoverished country can do with an active state as far as um, encouraging development. So I'm working on that. That's probably going to be the first to be completed. I'm just kind of in the final stages of that. And I'm working on a much longer-term project with Mike Beggs, a Jacobin editor who's at the University of Sydney in Australia, and Ben Burgess, a writer for both uh, The Nation and Jacobin, that is on market socialism and kind of the debates on what a feasible socialism could look like. So I think to the extent that I have time for, for writing, I'd rather focus on these kind of bigger picture, some might say more obscure uh, topics rather than the day-to-day conjunctural topics because I don't think I... I have the time or inclination to kind of stay in the, the news cycle. And like I said, there's plenty of people who, who can do that work, and my job is to just get their work out to, to more people. But then again, I do think part of my, my mission is to build on a generation of particularly Marxist theorists and activists. And I think for that role, um, you know, that's something I definitely want to um, continue. So, you know, as I, I was kind of stepping into a somewhat more mainstream uh, publication and role. I was thinking about the work of uh, my late mentor, uh, the Canadian um, academic, uh, Leo Panich, who's also the editor of Socialist Register, and a host of other, other people. And then kind of thinking to myself that there's a lot of work in their vein and tradition that I don't want to you know, leave, uh, leave behind. So that's, that's what I'll be working on whenever I have a spare moment. Sounds great. Bhaskar Sunkara is the new president of The Nation magazine. Thank you, Bhaskar. Thanks so much for having me. We spoke with Bhaskar for The Nation podcast, Start Making Sense. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Right to Sex. That's the provocative title of the new feminist bestseller by Amiya Srinivasan. Who has a right to sex and who doesn't? For some answers, we turn to Katha Pollitt. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. She's also written for The New Yorker, Dissent, The New York Times, and other publications. Katha, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, let's start with the title of this book, The Right to Sex and the Case of Elliot Roger, who killed six people in Santa Barbara in 2014 and left behind a 100,000-word manuscript explaining that he thought he had a right to sex. He did. Um, My own view is that no one has a right to sex. I think if people want to sleep with you, you're really lucky if you want to sleep with them. Otherwise, maybe not so lucky. (laughs) Um, But the idea that just by being a human being on this planet, people have to sleep with you, that seems insane to me. 
Elliot Roger is has become a kind of a symbolic figure of a new phenomenon in world culture. Remind us what where well, he stands. These are the incels, which is short for involuntarily celibate. And these are young men who simultaneously consider themselves very physically unattractive, but also that really high class women who they call um, Stacy's should sleep with them. But instead, the Stacy's want to sleep with the Chads, who are the alpha males. And this is very unfair. <laughs> Something must be done about this. I mean, it's really nuts. It's, it's just completely insane. I want to call those people up and say, you know, if you worked a little bit on your character, forget your looks. Anybody can, you know, most people get married. Most people do have some kind of an effective life, um, no matter what they look like. And if you would just work a little bit on your personality and on being a nice and interesting person, eventually <laughs> people would, someone would like you enough to want to uh, be your girlfriend. Very nice thought. Um, I, can I say one more thing about this? Please. Which is, the thing about the incels is that they don't really just want sex, although it's often portrayed that way. They want girlfriends. Because sex, any man can have. I mean, this is why sex work is work, you know, but that's not what they want. They want the attention of women, the favorable attention and em emotional labor of women. And that is something that is harder to get than sex. And the person who has written a book about this, Amya Srinivasan, is quite a cultural phenomenon right now. She had a big piece in the New York Times Magazine, another in the New Yorker. She was featured in British Vogue. Tell us about this author. Well, Amya Srinivasan is, she's in her middle 30s. She describes herself as queer. She is most important, more important than those things, is the Titchley Professor of Social and Political Theory at Oxford, which is a post that was held for, uh, by Isaiah Berlin for many years, and also by Charles Taylor, who's a big philosophical deal. So that it's going, she's the first woman, and she's the youngest person by a considerable amount. So that all creates a lot of interest in her. Um, and also she's writing about things that we don't usually think of as of uh, philosophy sex, feminism, all that. Um, I mean, feminism a little bit, but not incels, not pornography. So I think uh, we can agree that it's wrong when men <clears throat> focus their desire on women who are blonde or Asian, which is the current issue uh, here. But doesn't criticizing people for who they are attracted to seem like a losing proposition? Well, it certainly in the short run, it does. Back in the 70s, there was something called political lesbianism, which was when some lesbian feminists uh, tried to persuade straight women to give up men. Um, and I don't think that was a lasting success. <laughs> um, I'm sure there were some straight women who discovered their inner lesbian because of that. But I think in general, people... They have the tastes they have. They like the people they like. And there's not much that one can do about that. We can recognize that both men and women have desires shaped by culture and history. And we can try to be more open about who we desire and, and what makes them desirable. But, 
But who is going to hear this message? This is the thing. I just in this call out to people to be more broad minded, you know, maybe you'd like to sleep with a trans woman or a trans man. Give it a try, because the initial focus of this issue is the efforts of trans women to get lesbians to sleep with them, which have been called bullying. And I don't actually know what the ratio of bullying to newly discovered desire is. Um, But yeah, but who gets to hear that? Who is going to hear this message? It's not going to be men. Men are not going to say, wow, I should really try sleeping with a 400 pound woman. I might like it. No, they're not. They're going to say, honey, you've been gaining. I mean, is that five pounds? I see around (laughs) your middle there. Maybe you should go to the gym more often. Uh, uh, No, but women are very vulnerable to all kinds of moralistic and emotional bullying. They've been raised to be that way. And that, interesting enough, is what that wonderful story, Cat Person, was all about. Remember that viral short story by Kristen Rupinian? And it's about a woman who can't figure out this guy who's interested in her. Is he, you know, is he nice but kind of clueless? Is, is he maybe a serial killer? And it, she can never really make up her mind about him because the risks of the wrong decision are very great. But also the risks of the right of not of not giving this guy the emotional attention that all men seem to think they deserve. So you wrote about this for Descent magazine and there um, you return to the topic of the involuntarily celibate and you bring up what you call, quote, the largest group of losers in the dating and mating game. Who is that? Well, that's older women. And that's so interesting that she's so concerned. She, Amiya Sunavasan, is so concerned about these horrible incels. And she's not at all concerned about this huge demographic that is right in front of us that everybody knows examples of, which is older women, which is I take to be a woman over, you know, 40, 45, that men her own age simply will not date, who goes on dating apps and gets only insults or nothing. Um, you try being a 60-year-old woman, 60-year-old men are not going to be interested in you. They say they want a 25-year-old, but they probably accept a 40-year-old, but they're not <laughs> going to accept a 70-year-old. Uh, so it's amazing to me that this very important demographic peculiarity is completely invisible to her. Well, one of Amiya Srinivasan's essays is called Talking to My Students About Porn. And of course, all readers turn to this one right away. What what do her students say about porn? Well, it's really interesting because what her students say is not at all what you would gather if you spend a lot of time on, say, feminist Twitter, where porn is great, sex work is, you know, it's either just work or a wonderful thing. What her students say to her is that porn is very damaging to them. Both the men and the women say this, that it has promoted misogyny and sexism. It's affected their sex lives in bad ways, that it's sort of destroyed tenderness and kindness and fun in bed in favor of, you know, all kinds of awful things. That was very interesting because this is exactly what Andrea Dworkin would have predicted, you know, and Andrea Dworkin gets some kind words from Amiya Srinivasan. So Amiya Srinivasan is a professor and has an essay titled On Not Sleeping with Your Students. This was the one that was in the New York Times Magazine. Actually, I thought it was pretty terrific. 
She's dealing with the argument made by male professors who insist their female students come on to them constantly and they ask, well, what about all the male professors who ended up marrying one of their students and lived happily ever after? What does she say about all that? She says, basically, well, probably a lot of these men are not being strictly truthful, but more important, your job as a teacher is to teach your students. And the idea that sleeping with your students is part of the pedagogical project <laughs> is, is kind of insane. Let's remember, Socrates did not sleep with his students, although he was very attracted to them and made an argument against doing that. I thought that essay was, was very, very good. Now, as it happens, just yesterday, I heard from a dear, dear old friend who uh, is quite uh, culturally conservative, I would say, um, and who you would think would well, perhaps it's not surprising that he protested. He said, you know, I have been married to my wife for 50 years and she was my student. And there, you know, there I had I had a relationship with a professor of mine, but I was older than him. Was, okay. You know, uh, it was after the, and it was not a class that was very important to me. And it, you know, I mean, life is complicated. People do all kinds of things. But there are these guys who far from just falling in love with one person, it's a, it's a routine. Every semester or every year, there's a new one. And that's very damaging because these women are often very young and they're kind of naive and they don't understand what's going on. So let me quote Amiya Srinivasan. The teacher-student relationship arouses in the students a strong desire, a sense of thrilled, if inchoate, infatuation. That desire is the lifeblood of the classroom, and it is the teacher's duty to nurture and direct it towards its proper object, learning. The teacher al who allows his student's desire to settle on him as an object, or the teacher who actively makes himself the object of her desire, has failed in his role as a teacher. Yeah, well, it's like the way she's talking about it is a lot like the way people talk about psychiatry and sleeping with your patient, that they may have feelings for you, but you have to not gratify those feelings and direct them in a better way. And I agree with that. And she declares that she's analyzing sex as a political phenomenon, and that her work is, as she puts it, quote, animated by the hope of a different world, close quote. On the issue of the right to sex, she says no one is obligated to desire anyone else and that no one has a right to be desired, but she insists that who is desired and who isn't is a political question. So what are her politics? Well, she's a socialist, so she says, but I finished the book not really knowing what she meant by that and what effect socialism was supposed to have on the questions that she takes up. I'll give you a funny example, which is she talks about pornography and is mostly pretty negative about it. And in my S, my review, which I wrote for Dissent, a socialist magazine, one of the editors actually says, well, under socialism, couldn't the government pay for feminist porn? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, we're really going to see that <laughs> oh, in, our, in, in the next 500, sometime in the next 500 years. So I think that. Um, We've gone as a society very far down certain roads, roads of uh, extreme, what's the word I'm searching for, licentiousness or sexual freedom. But that doesn't really go along with socialism. 
as we have known it historically. Those countries, those socialist societies tend to have an initial burst of liberation followed by a real clampdown. And there's certainly carceral, you know, she's another, she's a person who thinks, you know, she's very anti-carceral feminism, which is putting sex offenders in prison. But, you know, there is no socialist country that is not extremely carceral, including the death penalty in a lot of them. So I'm not really sure what she's kept driving at here. Part of her socialism is a criticism of what she calls mainstream feminism for prioritizing the concerns and interests of white middle-class women. For example, she says on the Me Too movement, uh, for many women, being sexually harassed is not the worst thing about their jobs. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people, and that may be true. But, you know, only one thing can be the worst thing, and that doesn't mean we can't talk about the other things. So I would be wary of saying, oh, yeah, you know, sexual harassment. Well, I don't like that. But what I really want is a raise. Yes, you should have a raise. But that doesn't mean your boss gets to put his hands all over you. The book is The Right to Sex. Katha Pollitt reviewed it for Descent magazine. Thank you, Katha. Always great to talk with you. Lovely to talk to you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.